step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. everybody doing today? Lovely day here in New York. We got hit by a tropical storm a couple days ago. That was kind of crazy. Um, but now it's gone and the sun is back out, which means my mood is back up. So today we're going to talk about, uh, I have some new numbers on the general election and this stuff is wild. I'm going to show you um, specifics and you're going to be floored by it. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about um, how Biden has outflanked Trump on a very important issue, and that could really further spell disaster for him. Um, We have the Democrats admitting up front that the low bar for Biden is going to basically let them get away with doing nothing. So uh, there's a lot to say about that. We also have Wall Street feeling very confident uh, in a Biden administration. So there are many different angles of the upcoming election that we will be talking about. We have another terrifying fact about the COVID depression that we'll be diving into for everybody. And um, China is now making official moves to 
make sure that the United States is no longer the world's sole superpower. So a lot of stuff to talk about today. Oh, and later on in the show, we'll have some fun, and we will dunk on Mr. Rave Dubin. So stick around. You don't want to miss that. All right, let's get started here, and we're going to do that with an update on the state of the race. Okay. So here's an update on the state of the general election. This is really something. These numbers are... It's staying true to the trend that we've seen for a while, but they're still jaw-dropping in my opinion. So real clear politics in their average of national general election polls has Biden plus nine, plus nine. Hillary, just for some context here, Hillary was only plus two to plus four. Biden's plus nine, more than double that. Um, Now, Biden is up big in Wisconsin, Florida, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, very crucial swing states, and he has uh, smaller leads in North Carolina and Arizona. But perhaps the craziest fact, which this came out this week. Now, I have to say up front, it's a little different when you look at the average of polls. I haven't seen the average, but I'm pretty sure that if you look at the average, Donald Trump will be up by a small margin in Texas. But having said that, in this new poll, Joe Biden is up in Texas. So that's, that's unheard of. That's crazy. I've never, I've never seen anything like that before. There's always chatter every single election year about Democrats taking Texas. But really, it's never reflected in the polls. It never actually bears itself out. Like a Democrat could get close but they never really eclipse the Republican. This may be the first time ever. So now I I will say this. Do I think Biden is actually going to win Texas? No, I don't. But the fact that there are all these states in play now. So Texas is now in play in the general election I really think Trump will eat that state out. But nonetheless, apparently Texas is in play, which is wild. Iowa is also in play, which is wild. And um, I've never seen anything like this before in my life. I mean, I think Clinton won in a landslide. I'm not sure if it was 92 or 96. I think it was 96. He beat Bob Dole in a landslide. But I was too young to know what was going on. But we're trending towards a situation like that, where perhaps... Biden can get over 350 electoral votes. This is not something that any of us thought possible, especially early on in the Democratic primary when it looked like Biden was going to get routed by Bernie. Um, Now, Trump, seeing all this, is kind of flipping out inside his own head. And remember, we covered the story where he was on Fox News, he was on Sean Hannity's show, and he basically admitted like, this guy's going to be your president. He's going to be your president because some people maybe don't like me. It was a little Freudian slip of, like, he's letting us know that he actually sees the numbers and he's actually digesting them and saying, oh, okay, I'm in trouble. But 
it's a mask on moment here because Trump tweeted the following. Does anyone notice that the real polls, as opposed to the fake suppression polls also used in 2016, are starting to define Sleepy Joe Biden as someone totally ill-equipped to control the radical left crime cancel culture or to even come close to me on rebuilding the economy? 2016, here we go again. So let me explain to everybody why this is, I think, actually kind of dangerous. I was one early on to kind of mock the people who made the point that, oh, if Trump gets defeated, he's not going to go easily. There's going to be some sort of scandal. He's going to try to not go, or at least he's going to make a stink about it as, as he's leaving. I used to mock those people and say, come on. Half the time, he looks like he doesn't even want to be president. So if he loses, he'll probably just be like, all right, I guess I lost. But no, he is setting the table for if slash when he does lose, He's ready to blame a thousand other things and reject the legitimacy of the election. He's been talking about this in regards to mail-in voting. He's been saying, oh, my God, mail-in voting is totally fraudulent. It's fake votes. I want to get rid of the mail-in voting. And um, we have a pandemic going on. So many states are going to have mail-in voting. Some states are going to do all mail-in voting. So this is a way for him to turn around when we get the results and say, nope, I don't buy it. I think it's totally fake news. And he's just pretending now, even though I think he knows what's really going on, he's outwardly pretending like, no, 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 this is just like 2016. And I have to say, that's a crutch that the right has leaned on that is, it's becoming pretty comical, actually, because you have to explain and account for the giant differences in 2016 and today. Like, for example, the swing states were not all going in one direction in 2016, Trump was hanging on in quite a few swing states in 2016, despite Hillary's national lead of two to four points. Beyond that, like I already explained, Hillary had a national lead of two to four points, Biden's is nine. So you have to explain for that giant gap. In fact, there was an analysis recently that found that even if you had the same kind of like secret Trump vote that we had in 2016, where people maybe didn't tell pollsters they were pro-Trump and then they went and voted for Trump anyway, Even if you had the same number of people break pro-Trump, Trump Trump would still lose this time around. So the whole, like, oh, this is just like 2016 argument, it's actually not at all like 2016. Biden has a much bigger lead than 2016. But more importantly, it's in all the swing states he's hanging on. So some of the – and in most of the swing states, the leads are actually large for Biden. They're not small. I define large as over five points. So – now, this race is not over. The debates can change things, of course. I got a million caveats for you. It's a very volatile situation. But you can't just say this is 2016. It is certainly not 2016, and people don't have that same visceral hatred of Biden. Let me rephrase that. Most of the population does not have that same visceral hatred of Biden that people had of Hillary Clinton. They just don't. They just don't. And on top of Trump was using the right strategy against Hillary, he's using the wrong strategy against Biden. So put all that together, and guys, I just need to see like one or two of the debates, but I'm very close to pounding the gavel on this race. I'm very close to it. I know the race is a long way off, but this is getting beyond overwhelming, especially when there's no flashes of life from Trump. Back in 2016, even early on when the polls had Hillary more up, 
I was saying at the beginning of the general election, I was saying based on the trends and how I saw Trump run his, his campaign in the primary that I could see Trump winning. I could see him beating Hillary, and I saw there was a good strategic lane for him, and he more or less took that lane. So there were flashes of life even when Trump was down big in 2016. And then he closed the gap, closed the gap, closed the gap, and won. This time he's not closing the gap. The polls are going in the other direction. If anything, Biden's growing his lead the more Trump talks. So, you know, when you have a pandemic and when you have a new Great Depression, you can talk all about statues and the culture war as much as you want, but it's not going to really bear anything. And we're seeing that right in front of our eyes right now. So I just wanted to give you an update on the state of the race and give you the specifics. Biden up nine points on average nationally. Biden leading in most swing states by pretty significant margins. Biden leading in every swing state. Now states like Iowa and Texas in play. When Trump goes out there and screams, oh, 2016, 2016, really it's just, it's a let me save face moment. And it's also a let me set the table for if slash when Biden wins, I could try to cast out on the legitimacy of the election. And Jesus, I don't know what's going to happen. If slash when Biden wins, oh my God, he might refuse to leave. Or he might just, you know, make a hell of a lot of noise about how it's illegitimate, but still leave. But it'll be, it's very dangerous. You're playing with fire in an instant like that. Because then what you're saying is to everybody who's a hardcore Trump supporter, totally deny the, the legitimacy of the election, and then the peaceful transition of power is totally destroyed. And let's not forget that, like, there really is a strong contingent of far right-wing anti-government extremists who are willing to do terror attacks. We've seen it previously with sovereign citizens, for example. So if Trump feeds into that, we're in for a devastating, tumultuous couple of years. I mean, we're in for that anyway. We're in for that no matter what. But that'll just add another thing. That'll add fuel, fuel to the fire and make it a hell of a lot worse. And it would be the height of irony that you have this, what's basically a moderate Republican president in Joe Biden being treated like he's some sort of, you know, <laughs> Stalinist or something, which is just ridiculous. All right, next. So, guys, we have a problem. The problem is Trump is so abysmal and so ridiculous, and he's failing so bad at being president that the bar is so low the Democrats can also be uninspiring and ridiculous and still be up big in the polls. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So Trump failing on COVID, over 130,000 Americans now dead from COVID. The virus is still spreading like wildfire in in many states around the country. Um, You have the COVID new depression, which real unemployment, the real unemployment rate is over 20%. And we have a foreclosure and eviction crisis, which is right on the horizon. Um, You have about over 30% of people haven't paid their payment for this month. So we're in trouble. And Trump is out there focusing on statues and pretending Biden is Antifa. And it's, it's beyond absurd. And so there's no flashes of life in Trump's strategy. 
There's no, like, holding Biden accountable. And since Trump's not running a good campaign, Biden just has to run a campaign that's ever so slightly better than Trump's horrendous campaign, and then he's all set. So that leads me to the Democratic Coalition. So there was an ad released by the Democratic Coalition. Uh, There's a video of kids saying the Pledge of Allegiance. That's all the ad is. It's just like a bunch of kids saying the Pledge of Allegiance, and it's a pro-Biden thing. And they tweeted the following. It's not about policy. It's not about personality. It's not about political party. This election is a referendum on self-governance, democracy, and the rule of law. Hashtag Biden pledges allegiance to the U.S. Now, who are the Democratic Coalition? Well, it says, um, we help run hashtag the resistance and establish the impeachment task force. We campaign for Dems, fight foreign influence, and have unrivaled online organizing program. Okay, so let's break this down piece by piece. These... If this was one of the groups that was big on impeachment, well, congratulations. You guys gave Donald Trump a giant gift. If anything, the failed impeachment helped him because he bounced up in the polls afterwards, just like I told you was going to happen. So, in other words, they're bragging about being massively ineffectual and trying to take down Trump. And if anything, they helped him. They helped him. And then, of course, they have the little dog whistle about, oh, we want to fight foreign influence in our elections. That means we're, you know, Russiagate-obsessed freaks. And we focus on all the wrong things, and um, we are basically corporate democratic hacks who believe in nothing. And then, listen, we don't have to speculate any further, because the most important point, as I'm sure all of you noticed the second I read it, is that in the very tweet that's a Biden ad, they say, quote, it's not about policy. It's not about policy. It's not about policy. See, this is the exact kind of politics that drives me crazy, because you have these people who Use this stuff as a shield. So they'll go out there and say, good sir, this is about character. Yay. So they'll argue it's about character, it's about civility, it's about decorum, it's about professionalism. Now notice something. You can have somebody who outwardly appears to be very civil and to be very professional and very presidential, but they could still be terrible. They can still be a war criminal. They can still be a torturer. They can still be an economic deregulator. They can still be beholden to the oligarchs. So all of that stuff is window dressing and doesn't matter. But I'm here to tell you guys, that's the point, which gets back to the original thesis, which is these people have no intention of doing Medicare for all. They have no intention of doing a Green New Deal. They have no intention of legalizing marijuana and freeing the nonviolent drug offenders. They have no intention of raising wages or expanding unionization. They have no intention to do any of that. And they're basically letting you know up front. It's not about policy. It's not about policy. So we're just going to, you know, pretend to act all professional, and we're going to support Biden. That ad was one of the silliest ads I've ever seen, just pulling on your patriotism heartstrings. It's just a bunch of kids saying the Pledge of Allegiance. They put hashtag Biden pledges allegiance to us. I mean, this is the unwinnable situation we're in. Trump's campaign is so bad. Trump's presidency is so bad. He's running on freaking statues and Biden is Antifa or something. So now they've made it a layup for the Democrats, 
where Biden gets to go out there and say nothing and believe in nothing and advocate for nothing, and his people, like the Democratic coalition, same thing, and he's still up massively. We are in quite a pickle. It's a lose-lose situation for the left. Because Biden, quite accurately at this moment, realizes I don't really need him that much. I'll just keep picking off, like, older suburban voters, senior citizens. So that strategy is only working simply because it's an anti-Trump election cycle, simply because the guys in power are so hideous that people would vote for a ham sandwich over the guys in power at this point. But, and probably the most damaging aspect of all this, the most damaging aspect of the era, is that this kind of politics will be validated if slash when Biden wins. Because then they get to turn around and say, hey, lefties, you guys lost. Bernie Sanders lost. Biden won. You know what that is? That's a validation of Biden's politics. So that's a validation in their minds of, quote, it's not about policy. And then you spawn a generation of new neoliberal corporatists like the Mayor Pete, who will go out there, talk a lot, say nothing, move their mouth, but nothing substantive comes out. It's all vapid window dressing, airy-fairy nonsense. And we live in hell. That's what this is. We live in hell. Now you guys realize why I get so animated on the show. Because I want the left to win. I want our ideas to be implemented. I want to actually fix this country and improve people's lives. Stop bombing innocent people overseas. End the wars. Raise wages. Give people more power, more happiness. And we keep losing. We keep losing because of bad strategy lack of cohesiveness and commitment. And we got routed by these clowns. These guys. (laughs) It's not about policy. The same idiots that brought us impeachment, which helped Trump, are turning around and saying, we got this from here. Our ad, the tweet about our ad is going to say, it's not about policy. Even the fact that they say it's about democracy and rule of law, really? Well, Biden was vice president, and you guys didn't prosecute torturers. You guys didn't prosecute war criminals. You guys didn't prosecute Wall Street criminals. You let them off the hook. So it's not really about rule of law, because you abandoned rule of law. Could have upheld it. You guys abandoned it. This is their way of saying, we don't have to say anything. We don't have to do anything. This is like a, you know, this is like dancing on your way into the end zone. It's just showboating. It's like, we're going to rub it in your face that we're not about anything. <laughs> we're the, we got the, the bloods in power now, well, we're the Crips, and we're going to wreck that. It's not about policy. It's not about fixing anybody's lives. It's not. So you're going to take it. We're going to win, and you're going to take it. I mean, that's how I view this. That's how I'm reading this. So, you know, view this segment for me as a desperate cry for the left to get their act together, because I can't afford to watch Republicans win anymore, or watch corporate Democrats, neoliberals like this win. Either way, (laughs) I can feel my soul leaving my body as I read the path they're taking, the strategy they're using, and knowing that they don't plan on doing anything positive. All right, next. So the wealthy people who really run the country apparently got the message on Biden loud and clear. 
Look at this. Financial advisory firm tells clients Biden won't be moving too far left if he becomes president. The firm told its corporate clients that policy recommendations supported by Biden and Senator Bernie Sanders show that the presumptive Democratic nominee doesn't plan uh, to side too often with those on the left side of the political spectrum. The signum, signum, I literally have never seen that word before. Um, signum said, oh, is that the name of the company? Wow, I'm such a moron. That, that is the name of the company. Company. Okay, let me try that again. Signum said, some of the most notable progressive ideas that are not included in Biden's policy recommendations are the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, and the legalization of marijuana. So financial advisory firm Signum Global Advisors said the following, quote, the report is very aspirational. It pays lip service to some of the party's more progressive ideas, though has few specifics about how ideas will be achieved and generally repeats most of the moderate ideas from the Biden campaign's website. Now, my favorite part is they go on to say, hey guys, relax, 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 because it's, quote, light on detail. You know what that means? Out there, virtue say, even most of the time he's not talking about the progressive ideas and saying he's in favor of them, okay? But even in the few instances where he makes head fakes towards a progressive idea or two, it's, quote, light on the details, which is a wink and a nod, and the people on Wall Street go, oh, well, that means he doesn't really mean it. Yeah, oh, yeah, there are certain things that I would love to do, which are further left things. He's not going to do it. Of course he's not going to do it. Listen, I don't know why everybody's bothering to pretend that Biden isn't what he is. Like, why are particularly Bernie supporters playing along with the game? If you're going to vote for Biden, that's fine. I get it. You know, Trump is clearly, objectively, a lot worse, I think, when it comes to, uh, you know, our goals. There are way more issues where I have agreement with Biden versus Trump. But you don't vote for him with any illusions. Like, don't go into it being served a plate of shit and saying it's a fudge brownie. It's not. It's not a fudge brownie. The guy's a neoliberal corporate hack. If you want to know what he's going to do, look at his long record. Look at his long record. The best indicator of future action is previous, past action. So go look at his record, because that's how he's going to govern. Okay? So frustrates me when people pretend like anything else will happen. Like, oh, no, seriously, a couple of unity task forces really have shifted his perception on the world. It's called placating you. That's what it is. Now, again, if you want to vote for him with eyes wide open, just understanding who he is, I get it. Plenty of people believe in harm reduction. Sure, of course, go right ahead. Maybe there are a couple things Trump did that are a red line for you where you say anything but that. Hey, man, I'm not judging you. I'm really not. But just don't bullshit yourself in the process. Okay? Like, that's the deal. If you vote for him, fine. But don't bullshit yourself in the process. So this is Wall Street with the wink and the nod, and yes, don't worry, everything, it's business as usual, status quo, status quo, status quo. Now, the default is like, well, obviously Trump is taking care of us. That's the given. The given is, hey, man, they gave us, the Federal Reserve is pumping a trillion dollars a day of quantitative easing into us in this COVID downturn. You got the, the bailout package, which was overwhelmingly great for corporations and the wealthy. You got the 2017 tax cut law, which gave them everything they ever wanted. So Trump was basically just making it rain on him. It was corporate welfare all day long. So the default is that Trump is amazing for them. Amazing. And then now they're saying, well, whoa, 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 is Biden going to be tougher on us? And their conclusion is basically, not really, no. Or to the extent he is, it's acceptable. 
it doesn't cross any lines that they would view as, you know, infringing on them and stopping the gravy train. So now, interestingly enough, there was another um, article that I saw maybe about a week ago now, which actually had people in the military industrial complex, people who are defense contractors, they do not share this view. They were saying they're afraid that if Biden gets elected, their business will be hurt. Now, let's be clear. Does that mean, oh, Biden is good on the issue of foreign policy? No, look at his record, like I just said. His record's actually abysmal when it comes to, you know, war. But you got to understand, the Trump administration gave these guys everything they ever wanted, ever. Like this multi-billion dollar deal with Saudi Arabia, they're literally committing a genocide in Yemen, and the Trump administration is like, we don't care. We would like to arm you, and you can continue that genocide. Thank you very much. So they did this massive multi-billion dollar weapons deal. So our defense contractors are like, yes, more money for us, blood money, yes. And so, in other words, the Trump administration is so bad when it comes to the military-industrial complex. Um, and they're so pro-war. They've increased all of the wars, even as Trump every now and then mimics anti-war sentiments. That the defense companies think like, oh, well, even if Biden changes that trend by 5%, that's going to hurt our business because we're going to make less money. So that's what's going on with them. So the defense companies are, they think they will be worse off under Biden. They're probably correct that they will be worse off under Biden. However, I think it will be a marginal difference. Maybe they're 5%, 10%, 15% worse off, but really, you know, I wish we could make it so that they're 70% worse off. (laughs) But that's me, because everybody knows I want to end these wars. Anyway, um, so Wall Street has gotten the memo. They think everything's going to be okay. The status quo is going to continue. It's going to be business as usual under Biden. The defense contractors have a little bit of a different reaction. But really, I mean, guys, this is... um, if there was ever a story that really summed up accurately why the left is upset, I mean, it's this. This is, this is everything right here. These are the people that really control the country, run the government. And um, if they feel like things are not going to change too much, well, that means by definition it's not going to change too much for you either. And you need it to change. We need it to change. We need wages to go up. We need workers to have more power. We need to end the wars. We need to rebuild the country. We need hardcore change. Well, these guys are letting us know. That ain't really going to happen under a Biden administration. So, again, just have no illusions. That's the whole point of this segment. I'm not trying to sway you one way or the other in terms of what you want to do in your personal life and what you want to do in terms of your vote. You do whatever the hell you want to do, man. I'm not judging you. But what I'm saying is just have no illusions as to the nature of reality. It's a lose-lose for us. You could argue one is a loss that's not as bad you want to lose by 60 points or you want to lose by 40? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think that's an apt analogy for the situation that we're in, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to not tell you the truth. Even though the truth is ugly at the moment, that's my job. All right, next. Oh, wait. Where the hell did... um... Here we go. All right. 
So we just went through a bunch of stories about how Biden doesn't even have to be a half-decent candidate, and he's still up in the polls because Trump is colossally botching the COVID response, and there's a new depression happening, and there's all these problems. So Biden doesn't have to do anything, and, and he's winning big right now. Um, and then you have this, the Democratic coalition people pushing for Biden, literally arguing, it's not about policy. Like, we don't care about that. It's not about that. You have Wall Street saying, you know, we're kind of comfortable if Biden wins. That's totally fine. So all those are, are red flags. However, there is one issue where now Biden is not running a lackluster campaign. There's an issue here where he outflanked Trump on the left. And this is going to work. Like, this is politically astute. This move right here. Whoever Joe Biden's advisors are that told him about this one, spot on, spot on. And I'm here to call balls and strikes. And let me tell you something. If there's more of this that happens, Biden will win in a giant landslide. So look at this from CNBC. Joe Biden proposes a $700 billion plus Buy American campaign. Democratic candidate Joe Biden is proposing sweeping new uses of the federal government, government's regulatory and spending power to bolster U.S. manufacturing and technology firms, Biden calls for a $400 billion four-year increase in government purchasing of U.S.-based goods and services, plus $300 billion in new research and development in U.S. technology concerns. Biden is proposing tightening current Buy American laws that are intended to benefit U.S. firms but can, easily, but can be easily circumvented by government agencies. Okay, so let's pause. This is literally one of the things I was screaming that Joe Biden can and should do. Like, we get it. We've heard him say it a million times. He ain't going to bend on Medicare for all. I hate it. I despise it. I'm angry over it. I'm not going to get over it. But having said that, there were other issues where I said, hey, you haven't committed to being objectively shitty on this, so maybe you could take a stand on this. In fact, when I was begging Bernie Sanders, you want to get people like me to vote for Biden? Go to Biden. I have a list of 10 executive orders. If you promise to sign these in the first 100 days, I will fight like hell to get you elected. If you don't promise to sign them, good luck in November. I'm out. I'm not going to campaign for you. Now, Bernie would never do that because he needs a spine and he needs to be willing to take even more crap from the media telling him he's pro-Trump if he just walks away from campaigning for Biden. Um, but that's what Bernie needed to do because my guess is Joe Biden would have either said, okay, I'll do those 10 executive orders, they don't have to be, they ha could be areas where Biden has potential, right? That they don't have to be the things, hey, I know you said you're not going to do this, but now I want you to do this. No, you could find areas where he could be good. I bet Biden would either have signed on to that or he would have said, Bernie, I can't do these five, but I'll do these five for you. So, you know, you have my word on that. And then we have, we have tangibles. We have, you know, we know as a matter of fact, he's going to sign this within the first hundred days. And here are the awesome executive orders. And I told you guys, one of the things that should be on that list is the Buy American Executive Order. Why did I say that? Donald Trump, when he was campaigning, spoke about Buy America, Buy America, Buy America. And there's, there's a current law on the books right now that, oh, the federal government needs to buy America. So all the goods that the federal government needs to buy, and they need to buy a lot, by the way. They're giant. They need to buy America, but there's a loophole. The loophole is Buy America doesn't just mean Buy America. It means us and all of our allies. So, in other words, we could, you know, we could theoretically buy a bunch of goods from Israel. 
buy a bunch of goods from even even China because we we have a lot of trading going on with them even though you know we have a standoffish relationship that's still technically considered by American so Trump could have signed this executive order which made it so that no 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 when we say buy American for the federal government we mean it we mean actually within the borders of the United States of America if he did that manufacturing here would have shot up now it didn't Trump pretends like manufacturing is up. It's not. There's been a net outsourcing of jobs under Trump. Manufacturing is getting obliterated. But if he signed that, that would have really helped with manufacturing in this country. So Trump said he was going to sign that. He abandoned it. And instead he did a symbolic Buy America Week where, you know, he had, he had this, like, showcase at the White House. Look at all these amazing products that are made in the United States. See? Here are the different factories. Here are the different executives. Buy, buying American is awesome. So it's window dressing. He's not actually changing anything. He's keeping things exactly the same, but he's pretending. He's mimicking populism and fighting for the working class. So now Biden comes along and he goes, how about I actually sign that executive order? That's what I'm proposing. I'm going to actually sign that Buy American executive order. Spot on. This is such a wonderful strategy. Now, You know what happens when you outflank the Republicans? You know what happens when you run a good strategy? Well, we know. Let me show you, because Trump saw this news. There were reports that behind the scenes he was flipping out, yelling at his staff. He was losing it when he learned that Biden's going to do this. And then he was asked about it by the media. Here's his response. short-circuiting. Try to follow the logic there. He goes, oh, but he's plagiarizing, he's plagiarizing this for me. And then he goes on to say, he's plagiarizing this for me, now this plan is very radical left. Wait, 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 which is it? Is he plagiarizing from you and is the plan good, or is the plan very radical left? So he's trying to say, the plan is good and he's plagiarizing it for me, but also, no, the plan is bad and it's very radical left. <laughs> that makes no sense. <laughs> Unless you're admitting you were for a very radical left plan. See, it's all, this is what happens. You think, do you think Trump is some sort of genius? No, he's all, he's pure instinct and impulse. And there were some instincts and impulses back in 2016 that were powerful. Hitting Hillary on corruption, hitting Hillary on the Iraq war. Like, those were things that are bread and butter issues that landed. So now he's going all in on the statues and the culture war. He was just outflanked by Biden. Biden is doing to Trump what Trump did to Hillary back in 2016, and his brain is short-circuiting. Biden loves plagiarizing. By the way, that's true. He actually plagiarized, and he dropped out of the race in the 1980s. He was running for president in the 1980s. He dropped out because he was caught plagiarizing and just lying a thousand times. That's totally true. But people don't really remember that, and he didn't really explain it well there. But he says, oh, Biden plagiarized, plagiarized for me, it's not good. And then also this plan is very radical left, it's not good. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, 
and also, I mean, if you really think about it, he's raising taxes and he's uh, raising uh, regulations. Nobody is voting on regulations. Like, there's this, in the right-wing bubble, the Fox News bubble, they think that, like, if you bring up regulations, everybody agrees across the board that's just bad. And it's like, well, no, because regulations include clean air regulations, clean water regulations, regulations on Wall Street to stop the, uh, them from ripping us off. So those regulations are very good. <laughs> so they don't see he's he doesn't know how to respond. So he goes right back to the standard conservative talking points and the standard conservative talking points are horrendous. He's going to raise taxes. Fox News just hit him the other day or was a Fox business. We covered it on the show. They're making fun of Biden for saying he wants to raise corporate taxes corporate taxes. They did a segment like mocking him over it. I'm watching it going, by all means, go right ahead. Now, I see why Biden's up big in the polls, because this is the stuff that you guys are talking about. You're hitting him on his strength. That's a strength. Biden wanting to raise corporate taxes is good. That's a good thing. And they're hitting him on it, as if like everybody's going to agree, sitting at home watching, yeah, man, I really wish the corporations were paying less in taxes. Nobody's saying that. No regular person's saying that. So... See what happened? Trump immediately contradicted himself. Oh, Trump plagiar- uh, or Biden plagiarized me, but also the plan is very radical left. So it's a good plan that I want, was for, but no, it's a bad plan because he's doing it now. And it's very far left. And then he goes right back to the standard conservative talking point, something, something, regulation and raising taxes. That's not going to land. And now you see why Biden is up massively, not necessarily because of anything he's doing, although this is one good thing he's doing in terms of strategy, but because Trump is a mess now. Trump's a mess. We have an economic depression happening, over 20% real unemployment. We have a depression ripping through the country. He's not doing Dickie McGee's acts about that. And he's out there talking about statues and how Biden is Antifa. And then now he gets outflanked by Biden on one really important issue, and he melts. He melts. This is him falling apart in front of our eyes. So this is one good area. I'll give credit where it's due. This is one area where Biden actually did the right thing. I'm telling you, if he does more of the correct strategy... This election could be a historic blowout, historic, because even with Biden mostly doing the wrong things, he's still up. Like I've been saying he should hide in the basement. He's hiding in the basement and is, you know, he's winning pretty comfortably at the moment. But if you mix in some of this stuff, sky's the limit, (laughs) because this response from Trump was abysmal and pathetic, and he's only going to keep slipping in the polls the more he goes down this path. All right, next. President Trump has reportedly been asking Tucker Carlson for strategy advice for the 2020 election. And listen, in the past, I would have said that's not the worst source to go to on the right if you're looking for election advice. Because in the past, Tucker had mimicked anti-war sentiments. He had mimicked um, he, he did a segment defending Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders for their plan to stop financial institutions from basically ripping you off by charging interest rates that are too high. So he had flashes of like, okay, no, no, see, here, look, I'm going to say something that's decent. Now, he always mix it in with a heaping dose of bigotry, among other things, just terrible stuff ideologically. But... There was a time when that wasn't a bad place to go for election advice. Well, now, at this point, with Biden up big in the polls, 
Trump is panicking. Tucker seems to have lost all of his political instincts as well, because look at the type of strategy he's going with. These are the people who will run the country if Joe Biden is elected in November. So what's their plan? Well, in a sentence, they'd like to make the rest of America very much like our biggest cities have become. Squalid, dangerous, chaotic, and unhappy. They'd like to do to your neighborhood what they have done to New York City. The main thing they've done to New York is make it scary. Violent crime is surging dramatically there, as we have told you night after night. And one of the main reasons for that is the elimination of cash bail. The city no longer holds the people it arrests. Criminals are in and out of custody immediately, and many, of course, go on to commit more crimes. It's not. The Biden campaign plans to abolish cash bail everywhere. No bail for any crime nationwide. Think about what that would mean. Americans are fleeing urban areas in huge numbers. Big cities are just too mismanaged. They're too dangerous. Unless you are very rich or very poor, you're getting out. New York City lost 53,000 people in 2019. They will lose far more than that this year. Most of these refugees have relocated to the suburbs, where they imagine they are safe from the effects of disastrous urban policy. But they're not. Democrats want to abolish the suburbs. They are too clean and nice, and therefore, by definition, they are racist. (laughs) There's this thing that happened a few years ago. There was this talk online about, so they're strawmanning your opponents, right? Which is like, let me make up what I think your position is. Really, you're like caricaturing that person's position, and then you attack the caricature. And everybody watching goes, oh, yeah, you're right, because that position is ridiculous. Yeah, but that's not the person's position. You made it up, and then you attacked it. That's, you have to accurately represent their position. So that, then the term came out, steel man. Like, you should steel man your opponent. So present the best version of their argument, and then if you're going to disagree, disagree with the best version of their argument. Don't, like, make it absurd up front where it's ridiculous at face value, and then attack it, because then you're not, like, you're not doing anything. You're just... You're an idiot in the public discourse, and you're making an ass of yourself. I've never seen a better example of, like, strawmanning your opponent to, to then try to defeat that argument. Like, really? That's the line you're going to go with? The Democrats want to abolish the suburbs. <sighs> Nobody said that. You said that. Now, he goes on to explain, like, oh, they want to get rid of some of the zoning rules that are just for single-family houses. The harm! The harm! So it's like, the point is, hey, maybe Democrats will want to build more affordable housing units. Maybe some of those will be in the suburbs. And oh my goodness, won't that bring in the undesirables? Now hold on, Tucker. I thought you were, you know, all like rah-rah working class guy. Those are working class people. So now all of a sudden you're against the working class people. Hmm, I wonder why that is. I wonder why that is. Affordable housing could it be because there are a lot of people of color in those affordable housing units? Hmm. And then he gets triggered when somebody calls him a bigot. Just own it, bro. Just fucking own it. Like, I, I hate the Weasley people. I hate the Weasley people who know what they really believe. But then if you say it, they're like, oh, my God, no. No. Is it really that scary to have more affordable housing units in areas that are suburban? Isn't, and isn't the real idea, hey... Let's give everybody access to a more comfortable suburban life. Not like, oh, let's drag down the suburbs and make it like crime-ridden or whatever. And they don't even, like, they don't address the real 
argument behind, like, the defund the police movement. Now, I said up front, I think that sounds extreme. You know, I think we do need police to one extent or another. Now, you should narrowly define what their job is and stop them from doing all the things that they shouldn't do, right? But he doesn't ever engage with the actual reasoning behind the argument. Like, oh, let's replace a lot of the things that cops do. Like, why should cops have to deal with homeless people with mental health issues? You don't need a guy with a gun. You need a, a mental health expert with some compassion to deal with somebody who's, like, homeless and in trouble. So there's no, again, it's just relentlessly making a mockery of positions that are not necessarily ridiculous. Like, let's think of the best version of that position and then have a real conversation about it. He doesn't want to do that. He'd rather just go out there and say, they want to abolish the suburbs. Um, I can't believe that they want to change the zoning on single-family homes and maybe allow more affordable housing, the horror on that. Then when he talks about cash bail, I mean, that really gives away the game there because cash bail is just a way to criminalize poverty. So you can't, you commit a crime, you go to prison, if somebody's rich, they could pay to, to get out before the trial. If they're not, they can't. So obviously, the reason behind it is let's criminalize poverty. That's not even hidden. That's just what it is. And he thinks that's a good thing. So again, what happened? I thought you were like all pro-worker and regular people. <laughs> to be for cash bails, as elitist a position as you could possibly get, let's give the rich people an unnecessary leg up over the poor people. And then I like the argument that he thinks Biden wants to make the U.S. dangerous and scary with violent crime. Joe Biden is the architect of the crime bill, which is as tough on crime as you could get. It's way too tough. It takes crimes that shouldn't even necessarily really be crimes, and they punish them way over the top in a way that's excessive. So, and, and now you see why Trump is losing, because now this is the guy that's given him advice. Trump, his instincts are already gone. Back in 2016, he had good instincts. He hit Hillary on all the important things, on corruption, on her being the status quo, on trade, on war, bread and butter issues. Now it's all, oh, my God, Biden is far left, Biden is Antifa, and I love statues. Like, that's, that's the strategy. And now Tucker is helping Trump, and he's of the same mind that let's go all in on the culture war in order to win. But this is not going to land. This is not going to work. This is just preaching to the choir nonsense. Nobody thinks Biden's far left, no matter how many times you say it over and over and over. Nobody thinks that. Nobody. And when you go out there and say, oh, Biden's basically weak on crime, he wants to make the U.S. dangerous, what you're saying is to ignore his record, I'm going to pretend like he's somebody he's not, and then I'm going to attack him on those grounds. they got to be doing, they got to be doing cartwheels behind the scenes, because they're like, oh, my God, this is the easiest election ever. These guys can't get a single thing right in terms of their strategy. What are you doing? This is embarrassing. See, is what happens when you're too brainwashed, you're too in your own bubble. You begin to think like, you know, you can't make mistakes. But this is as big of a mistake as it gets. This strategy is not going to work against Joe Biden. If anything, it's going to keep helping him. Because nobody is buying your line of argument that he's weak on crime. Nobody's buying your argument that, like, Democrats want to abolish the suburbs. And I got news for you. Even a lot of the people who are in Tucker's own audience, the whole preaching of the choir, a lot of people who are already on the right, many of them don't care about cash bail or even have the opposite position on cash bail because they realize that it's just criminalizing poverty. So, you know, by all means, good luck. Keep going forward with this strategy and um, <laughs> have fun watching the landslide Biden victory.
All right, let's take a break, guys. When we come back, we got a lot more, including more on the COVID depression. So stay right there. We'll be right back, and um, we will keep it going.
We back, bitch. Keep it going, everybody. Let's keep it going. Another terrifying economic fact for everybody about the COVID depression here. This is in CNBC. As the economic fallout from the coronavirus pandemic continues, almost one-third of U.S. households, 32%, have not made their full housing payments for July yet, according to a survey by Apartment List, an online rental platform. About 19% of Americans made no housing payment at all during the first week of the month, and 13% only paid a portion of their rent or mortgage. That's the fourth month in a row that a, quote, historically high number of households were unable to pay their housing bill on time and in full, up from 30% in June, and 31% in May, renters, low-income, and younger households were most likely to miss their payments apartment list found. So listen to this. Many households have already spent their one-time stimulus check, the one-time $1,200 check, and the extra $600 per week in unemployment insurance used by many to cover essentials like housing runs out at the end of July. That means even more households could potentially miss their rent or mortgage payments in the coming months. We're already at 32%. We're already at 32%. What's that going to go up to when you get rid of the $600 per week unemployment insurance increase? And again, it goes away at the end of this month. What's that going to get up to? Over 50%? Over 50% of people unable to pay their rent or their mortgage? Over half the country? Is that what's going to happen? Over half the country can't pay their rent and can't pay their mortgage. I'm at a loss for words. We've never seen anything like this before. I don't know how many times I could tell you that. When you look at the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession in 2009, guys, even before COVID, we were kicking 2 million people out of their house, I believe, per month, which is higher than the height of the Great Recession. That was pre-COVID, pre-COVID. What's going to happen when we're totally done with COVID, no more cases, which it'll be a while, by the way, before we get there. What's going to happen to all these people who can't make their payments? What's going to happen? Over 50% of the country, perhaps, is not going to be able to make their payments? You think we're seeing social unrest with this George Floyd situation? Just wait. Just wait. There will be social unrest the likes of which we maybe haven't seen in this country before. When you have real unemployment over 20%, when you have a situation where maybe half the country or more can't pay the bills, I mean, that's a recipe for revolution. I don't want to sound hyperbolic about it, but, like, 
all the distractions in the world cannot save us from the inevitable. I get it. You know, we live in the modern era. We got computers. We got Netflix. We're like plugged in in a way that can distract us from all the problems of everyday life. But if over half the country can't keep a roof over their head, what do you think is going to happen? And just so everybody understands, I'm an idiot loudmouth YouTuber, and I'm talking about this. Do you think that Mitch McConnell, do you think that Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, do you think that Trump or his merry band of idiot advisors like Larry Kudlow, you think that they know that this is on the way and that this is the dire situation that we're in? You think they know? They have literally no idea. Trump goes out there every day now and brags about the V-shaped recovery. It's unbelievable. The stock market is bouncing back. The stock market, 92% of the stock market is owned by the top 10% of income earners. So you're bragging about the stock market. You're bragging about how the rich are doing. You're bragging about how the corporations are doing. Guys, we had a full corporate bailout. We had full corporate socialism at the beginning of this crisis. It was Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine 101. They looked at COVID. They looked at the impact. The Federal Reserve, the central bank, stepped in and said, we will do anything to prop the market up. A trillion dollars in liquidity per day, fine. Then you had the CARES Act, the COVID bailout. It was crumbs to the people. But really the point of that was the $5 trillion to corporate America to let them know, hey, we got your back. So we fully socialized corporate America, propped them up, and then now regular people are the ones who are getting screwed. Why didn't we just not bail them out and bail, do a bailout from the bottom up instead of the top down? This is the same thing we did in 08. We did a top down bailout, not a bottom up. Same thing now. We did a top down bailout, not a bottom up. Well, when you don't bail out from the bottom up, this is what happens. You're going to have 50% of the country who can't, live, who can't put a roof over their head. We've never seen anything like this. And to think about the fact that in the midst of this crisis, with a pandemic, they're like, no, we will not do Medicare for all. You're not going to get health care. There's a pandemic, bro. People can't pay the bills. They can't even put a roof over there. Do you think they can afford medical bills if they get sick? Are you kidding me? Even the idea, even the concept of medical bills makes me sick just hearing it. Somehow other countries have figured out how to make sure everything's covered when it comes to your health. This country, nope. You might have to go bankrupt. You might have to go bankrupt because you got sick. That's the way it works. We've covered stories, what was it, $40,000 bill because somebody had COVID and they needed a lot of care. They're denying you universal health care in a pandemic. They're denying you universal basic income when you can't work because of the pandemic. They give you a one-time $1,200 payment that you went through in probably a week. If they don't make real concessions, I shudder thinking about what happens in the future. If they don't do real concessions, if they don't do Medicare for all, if they don't do universal basic income, I shudder at what's going to happen. This country's coming apart at the seams. It could come apart a lot worse than it already has. Because there's no way you can keep the facade going when probably over half the people will not be able to put a roof over their head. What do you want to do? You want to you evict all of them? 
foreclose on all of them? You want to kick them all out of their, their place where they live? Is that what you want to do? You want millions and millions and millions and millions of new homeless people? Is that what you want to do? You know, I knew our government was totally corrupt and terrible, but I think I was naive in the sense that on some level I thought, well, they won't let it get beyond a certain point. Like, it won't get so bad that it threatens the fabric of the system, period. No, it will. And they're totally unaware. It absolutely will. They'll let it get as bad as possible. Because these guys are not there to represent you. They're not. They're given money to get elected by corporations and billionaires. So when they get in there, they represent corporations and billionaires. They don't care about you. And this is the result. This is the result. We have the solutions. That's the thing that's probably the most frustrating, is that we know what would work. We know how to fix these problems. We know how to make our country better. And they just, they're not doing any of those ideas. They're not doing Medicare for all. They're not doing free college. They're not doing a Green New Deal. They're not doing a living wage. They're not ending right-to-work laws and having stronger union laws. They're not doing universal basic income. There are really clear ways. They're not getting money out of politics. There are really clear ways to fix all this stuff. They don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. And we're about to see unrest that, again, will make the George Floyd protests look like cakewalk because this may surpass the Great Depression. If these numbers come to fruition... Think about how the history books are going to look at this point in time. Think about how they're going to look back on this. Kind things are not going to be said about this era, about this generation. And I haven't even touched climate change yet, which is ecological disaster, which is civilization threatening. Haven't even touched that yet. <laughs> oh, that is a nihilistic laugh I just had if I've ever heard of one. All right, now um, we just covered the story about how 32% of the country is late on their payment for July to pay their rent or their mortgage, 32%. And the expanded unemployment runs out at the end of this month. So when that runs out, we literally could have over 50% of the country being unable to afford the roof they have over their head. Keep that in mind as I tell you this next story. There's a new report about wealthy tax cheats, and this will show you who the real criminals are in our country. Common Dreams reports the following. A Congressional Budget Office report commissioned by Senator Bernie Sanders and published Wednesday found the amount of unpaid taxes from 2011 to 2013 averaged around $381 billion per year, a revenue shortfall the Vermont senator called an absolute outrage that is largely the result of big corporations and wealthy tax cheats dodging their obligations. The richest 1% is responsible for 70% of all unpaid taxes, Sanders said in a statement late Wednesday, pointing to a separate study of the so-called tax gap published last November. The CBO analysis out Wednesday 
found that massive internal revenue service budget cuts and staff reductions over the past decade have resulted in a sharp decline in examination and enforcement of tax underpayment and avoidance. Quote, enforcement activity for many high-income non-filers has been reduced to a series of notices, the report says. The CBO's findings bolster reporting by ProPublica last year that found the IRS, quote, now audits poor Americans at about the same rate as the top 1%, due in part to the high costs of examining the tax returns of the rich. So they go on to say, quote, the IRS examination rate for the largest corporations, those with $20 billion or more in assets, dropped by about half from 2010 to 2018. The wealthiest taxpayers with more than $1 million in income saw their audit rate cut by 63% during the same time. In other words, in other words, there's a clear shift away from the government looking into corporations dodging taxes and the wealthy dodging taxes. And now more and more, they're shifting towards, let's shake down poor people who don't have that much anyway. Now, why would such a thing happen? You already know. Because corporations effectively run the government. They bought the government. They own the government. And so all they have to do is say the word. All they have to do is hint a little bit. And the government's like, okay, we got it. We know. We know. We got you. We know what we're going to do. We'll continue to shake down the poor in this country. And you guys can keep jamming money into the Cayman Cayman Islands or whatever other tax havens you're using, which is just a fancy word for tax avoidance, cheating on your taxes. And the numbers are clear. There's a clear trend in that direction. Let's let them get away with doing whatever the hell they want and not paying their taxes. And let's crack down extra hard on regular people. So here's what Bernie said about this. And this is true, by the way. So keep this in mind. We could fund tuition-free college for all, eliminate child hunger, ensure clean drinking water for every American household, build half a million affordable housing units, provide masks to all with that money. We're talking about $381 billion per year in wealthy tax dodging, per year, per year. With that money, let me repeat it, we could fund tuition-free college, that's only about $60 billion, eliminate child hunger, ensure clean drinking water for every American household, build half a million affordable housing units as we have a housing crisis that's about to hit, that we're actually in already, and we could provide mass to all with that money. Do you see how broken the system is? And the media's job is to gaslight you about all this too, by the way. Because every time there's a suggestion to help the people, you have a parade of idiots saying what? Say it with me now. How you gonna pay for it? How you gonna pay for it? How you gonna pay for it? They say that every time. Free college? How you gonna pay for it? Medicare for all? How you gonna pay for it? UBI? How you gonna pay for it? They've never once said that about wars. They've never once said that about wealthy tax dodgers. Hey, you guys are cheating the system out of $381 billion a year. How are we going to afford it 
if the rich people aren't sufficiently patriotic in paying their taxes? I guess they hate America. These arguments are never flipped on them. You say people hate America when they do stuff like criticize wars. I would argue that's not hating America at all. That's loving America and trying to fix it. But if rich people and corporations dodge $381 billion per year in taxes, they somehow love America? No, that seems to me like they hate it, and they're greedy bastards, and they want to get every single red cent out of this country. Nobody ever says, how are we going to afford for them to keep dodging taxes? We could use that money for all these important things. Nobody ever says that. Nobody ever says, how are we going to, you know, how do we afford these wars? Oh, my God, you want to keep bombing? I don't know how we can afford that. It's only when it's tough for you. That's the media's job. The media's job is to gaslight you and protect the status quo. The system is so broken, it's overwhelming, man. It really is. And I keep saying it, I keep saying it, but the answers are so simple. But they don't do them, they don't even talk about them. Because they're incentivized to do the opposite. The government and the media are beholden to the wealthy and corporations. That's it. That, that's the gist of it. That's how we got to this place. At the same time that we're going to be maybe 50% of Americans or more can't afford the roof over their head, we're talking about every year $381 billion in tax avoidance from corporations. And by the way, the cherry on top is they're now pretending to go full woke. <laughs> Siding with protesters. They, oh, yeah, totally. We're all about racial justice, bro. We're all about racial justice, bro. Yeah. Unless it's your Cambodian child workers. Not racial justice for them. Only racial justice to virtue signal while here as you keep dodging your taxes and paying your workers crap. The system is going to collapse under the weight of its own hypocrisy. I think that the U.S. is officially losing its status as the world's sole superpower. China's strategic accord could give Iran a $400 billion boost and up military ties. Under 25-year agreement reportedly finalized Beijing and Tehran to increase military cooperation, including weapons development and intel sharing, China getting discount oil. So they say negotiations between Iran and China over the creation of a 25-year strategic accord appear to have concluded, with the New York Times on Sunday publishing excerpts from an 18-page agreement labeled Final Version that could see Beijing invest $400 billion over the next 25 years in exchange for discount oil. The document, which the Times said was dated June 2020, has yet to be approved by Iran's parliament, detailed how Beijing would receive Iranian oil at a sharply reduced price for the next quarter century in exchange, expanding its economic involvement in a variety of fields, including banking and infrastructure, such as telecommunications and transport. This would potentially include giving the Iranians access to China's global positioning system and helping roll out an Iranian 5G network. So, this is how you build an empire in an intelligent way, 
we've spoken about um, the Belt and Road Initiative, which is what China is engaged in, which is basically imperialism through debt and imperialism through building up the infrastructure for other countries. It's clever, and it's very similar to what the U.S. used to do. Like, after World War II, we built up all the people who were our enemies. And the idea behind it was you can create partnerships and you can create a strategic alliance, which is very good in the long run. If we take a lot of time and effort and investment and build up these countries now. Um, that's kind of what made us the world superpower. And then, of course, as time goes on, the empire slowly but surely begins to unravel and crumble. And you have the U.S. stopped using diplomacy and investment and started using the barrel of a gun a hell of a lot more. And so now we're just the bullies on the world stage. Now we commit war crimes every Tuesday before brunch. And, uh, you know, we're bombing six to eight different countries. We have military bases all over places like Africa, for example. There's a shadow war going on there. We have the drone war. And um, basically what we do is we use our colossal military to bully everybody. And, of course, we've used covert actions as well, our intelligence agencies, the CIA, overthrowing foreign governments in Central and South America, for example. And um, it's been an aggressive and thuggish turn for, for quite a while now. That's how the U.S. has functioned. And that's how we maintain our superpower status, by spending so much more on our military than the rest of the world and basically letting everybody know, like, you can't step to us because we could fuck you up, basically. Well, what China's doing is what is the next step, or, or it's an evolution from the brute force superpower approach. And it's a way to try to give people, give these countries mutual benefit. Now, really, this makes Iran kind of like a client state to China. And it's strategically important now that they have this alliance. And this is, in, to some extent, limiting Iranian sovereignty. But guess what? When your economy is in tatters, when you feel like there's going to be revolution and everything is unstable and you've been sanctioned like crazy by America, you're going to take friends wherever the hell you can get them. And you will make strategic alliances to, to ameliorate the harms being done to your people. So in steps China, and now they're doing a long-term strategic alliance with Iran. And there's things that both sides are getting out of this. This is how... Now, I don't, I don't believe in imperialism, and I don't think there should be a world sole superpower. I don't. If there were to be one, though, this is how you do it intelligently. Through the Belt and Road Initiative, through building up the infrastructure in various places in remote areas around the world, and giving people more material well-being in exchange for a strategic alliance and what is basically a, a position on the global chessboard, which is now dominant. See, that's like the ultimate, that's the ultimate motive here. The more strategic alliances you create, the more um, 
mutual beneficial agreements you come to, the more dominant you are geopolitically. So it's kind of amazing to watch this all unfold because you have effectively a total moron running the United States. That's Trump. And um, very impulsive. I'm sure all these world leaders know how to deal with him and handle him and stroke his ego and then he'll give him whatever the hell they want. And um, basically right under the nose of the United States, China is becoming a stronger superpower and crafting these sort of, sorts of strategic alliances, which in the long run will be absolutely devastating for the United States and its position in the world. Um, this is a shot across the bow is what it is. And again, I'm not, I don't believe in imperialism. I don't believe that there should be a world sole superpower. But let's not get it twisted. Don't fall into the trap of because the U.S. is so bad when it comes to foreign policy, because we're such a vicious empire, that therefore if somebody else steps up and does this stuff, that they're going to be good. No, there really shouldn't be a world sole superpower. There shouldn't be imperialism. And, you know, talk to the Uyghurs. We're in concentration camps about what they think about China. Um, they are, in many respects, they, they control the media in a very restrictive way over there, very authoritarian. Now, we, of course, you know, we've gone after Chelsea Manning. We've gone after Edward Snowden. We've gone after Julian Assange. We're no angels. Don't get it twisted. But don't fall into the trap of, like, because U.S. bad, somebody else good. No, you need to criticize power and authority and the manifestations of wrongdoing as a result of that anywhere and everywhere, including in the case of China and what they're doing. So this is, no matter how you slice it or dice it, this is strategically intelligent, geopolitically powerful for them to do this, and it really kind of rips the mask off of how the U.S. is a crumbling empire, and I'm not sure Trump even understands all the implications of this. He just listened to, listened to his neocon hawk foreign policy advisors who have basically told him, like, you got to wage war on Iran. you got to wage war on Venezuela. you got to wage war on North Korea. Now, North Korea, he didn't, thank God, but the other ones, he's been escalating tensions with them, sanctioning them, so on and so forth. And um, see, now you get outmaneuvered strategically because you went with the hawkish approach. Could have very easily been a situation where we had no ill will with Iran. You know, we kept the Iran nuclear agreement in place, slowly but surely moved towards a place of mutual understanding and recognition and even necessary trade to some extent. Um, but instead of going down the intelligent path, we went down the brute force idiot path, and now China swoops in, and they're going to get all like the upsides and the benefits of a strategic alliance and we are being more and more isolated on the world stage. Now I told you I told you guys militarily I'm a non-interventionist. I don't think we should use the US military um, for anything other than self-defense, like an imminent threat of attack against us. But I always made a distinction between the term non-interventionist and isolationist because when people say isolationist they use it in a pejorative context. And I think that isolationism entails more than just military non-intervention. Isolation means you're isolated from the world in other respects, too. And what we're seeing unfold here is the U.S. becoming isolated from the rest of the world, pulling out of the World Health Organization, watching China and Iran get a strategic alliance, 
Um, the rest of the world kind of coming together against us, uniting against us. We're letting COVID go out of control. Other countries have it under control. So now we're not allowed into many places because a lot of Americans could have the virus and then travel elsewhere and start new outbreaks. So what we're seeing is we are becoming isolationist. I wish we were just militarily non-interventionist, but no, no, now we're becoming isolationist, which strategically is suicidal. And, um, but here we are. And this was all predictable to see. We've been acting like a bunch of moronic, aggressive idiots on the world stage. And, um, the chickens are coming home to roost. All right, next. President Trump hit Biden on the whole defund the police thing. He released a new ad. You're going to see that. And then you're going to see Trump on Hannity um, bringing up Venezuela in the context of going after Biden. Watch this. safety and security are now key in this country. We'll go over Joe Biden's comments, but your campaign released this ad. I'm of the view that nobody pursues happiness if you're not safe and secure. Let's roll the tape. You have reached the 911 police emergency line. Due to defunding of the police department, we're sorry, but no one is here to take your call. If you're calling to report a rape, please press 1. To report a murder, Press 2. To report a home invasion, press 3. For all other crimes, leave your name and number, and someone will get back to you. Our estimated wait time is currently five days. Goodbye. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. That He's been taken over by the radical left. He has no clue what they're doing and what they're getting him into. This is worse than Bernie Sanders at his, at his best. And you look at the deal they made with Bernie Sanders now in the group. It's all crazy radical left stuff. And Joe's never going to be able to find it, even if he disagreed with it, which I actually don't think he does. I think they, you know, there's an expression, an old expression was used badly a long time ago in politics. I think they brainwashed him. They brainwashed him. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know what he's doing. And our country will suffer. Our stock markets will crash. Uh, bad things will happen. They will defund the police. They will abolish the police. It will be uh, maybe a backlash, or maybe it'll just go to hell like Venezuela. Joe Biden is going to turn America into Venezuela. (laughs) Bro, he's a moderate Republican. That's what he is. These guys, like, it's almost like they're crafting a strategy trying to lose. All they do is preaching to the Fox News choir who already agrees with them. You got to expand the tent, bro. It's amazing. I'm, I will never not be amazed watching them go all in on this strategy. That's really something else to me. You're bringing up Venezuela. By the way, one of the main reasons why Venezuela is in such a terrible position, 
not to say anything about Maduro's leadership, is that the U.S. has sanctioned them in virtually every single way imaginable for such a long time. So, of course, when a, you know, a world superpower is trying to cut off your economic health, yeah, that tends to have some negative side effects. Now, there's also issues with them investing too heavily in oil and you know, having that one thing run their whole economy. And so there's other things going on there as well. And I'm not defending the leadership of Venezuela. But it is kind of ironic that like, we try to mess up the country, and then we turn around and say, ah, that's messed up. Yeah, <laughs> that's, more, that's what you wanted. But the idea that Biden would turn America into Venezuela. No, Biden would turn America into America which is a corrupt oligarchy, the same one that you are exacerbating. He's like, again, in 2016, I know I keep bringing it up, but Trump's argument was Hillary's the status quo, Hillary's the establishment, I'm the outsider, I'm going to change things up, I'm going to protect your job, I'm going to stop the wars, I'm going to rebuild this country, we're going to win, win, win. That was the argument then. Now the argument is Joe Biden is Antifa, He's like a puppet of Marxists. He's going to turn America into Venezuela, and I like statues a lot. And you wonder why they're losing. So um, that ad, like that ad is so ridiculous. It's video, I love how they're showing video of the riots in Minnesota. That's video of Trump's America. And Trump's warning is, if Biden gets elected, this could happen to the United States. But it did happen to the United States, and it happened in your America. So you can't fearmonger about this might happen to America when it's already happening on your watch, on your watch. And by the way, the response from the Biden people, all they have to do, and I've seen a bunch of ads about this now, all they have to do is be like, COVID-19, 130,000 dead, millions of people with it, not under control. Every other country has it under control. I rest my case. That's all they have to do. Say that over and over, and that's it. That's it. That's going to win the election. That's what that'll do. They're trying to act like Biden supports defunding the police. When he was asked if he supports it, here was his answer. Ready? He goes, no. So why are you hitting him with something that he obviously said, I'm not for that? Why are you hitting him with that? Now, by the way, these guys also caricature what it means when people say defund the police. There actually are, if you listen to the people who advocate for it and have thought through it, they'll give you, like, detailed reasons behind it. It's not what it sounds like, like abolish all police. No, it's like, okay, so police officers are handling things they shouldn't have to handle, like homelessness. Well, we should have mental health experts who are are sympathetic, who can help these people step in and help. That doesn't sound crazy, does it? Exactly. So it's just they're using the caricatured version of the left. But even if you buy into that caricatured version, okay, Biden's not for that. So how can you bring that up? And the final point I'll make is he brings up the Unity Commission. And he says, like, see, the deal with Bernie, they're doing all these crazy radical left things. I wish, I wish they would do things that you would call crazy radical left. I wish they would do Medicare for all. I wish they would do free college. I wish they would do a Green New Deal. I wish they would actually dedicate themselves to rebuilding this country and rebuilding unions and, and ending the wars. I wish. But they're not. So, you know, you're not going to get around the fact that Biden is a moderate Republican. You're just not. People in the heart of hearts, I think, know that. They do. Even Bernie, every time he's, like, advocated for Joe, he always starts by saying, now, look, there are a lot of areas where me and Joe disagree uh, vehemently, and our our supporters disagree with him very strongly. 
So that's him, like, acknowledging up front, like, okay, yeah, I get it. The, guy, the guy's a moderate Republican. But anyway, let me tell you why I prefer him to Trump. So, like, everybody gets that. But even Republicans get that. I lied. I, I think I said final thing. I'm saying one more final thing. I believe it was Dave Weigel of the Washington Post on Twitter pointed something out. And I thought this was really fascinating. And this could be very impactful. Leading up to the 2016 election, there were, I'm, gonna, I'm forgetting the number, but there were something like 8 to 13 votes, uh, uh, excuse me, not votes, books written about Hillary Clinton from the right. So like 8 to 13 books that are like, she's evil, she's terrible, she's wrong, she's bad, look at what she did, look at this scandalous book, look at this, look at this, look at this. So they were defining Hillary up front and like really permeating the broader culture by doing that. You know how many anti-Biden books have been written? One. That's it. So they're not defining him much, but to the extent they are defining him, they're pretending he's like a Marxist, and he's just like, no, I'm not. And people are like, yeah, he's definitely not. (laughs) And then you got Trump with an economic depression and COVID, and he's just getting obliterated. So anyway... They're going to keep doing this wrong strategy, and I'm going to keep making fun of it. It's kind of hilarious to watch the car crash in slow motion. So there's a heartbreaking story coming out of Texas. Somebody went to a COVID party, which is a thing pains me to say it, but it's true. Um, They went to the COVID party because they thought that the virus was a hoax and a bunch of people get together to see if anybody gets it. And and, um, I guess this was a way that people thought like, hey, we'll prove that this isn't that big of a deal. Well, you can guess what happens next. A so-called COVID party turned deadly for a 30-year-old in San Antonio. Methodist Hospital says one of their patients claimed to have gone to such a party before dying from the disease. Eyewitness News reporter Holly Stouffer tells us the heartbreaking words the patient shared before passing away. A 30-year-old patient dies at Methodist Hospital after going to what's being called a COVID party. This is a party held by somebody diagnosed with the COVID virus, uh, and the thought is that People get together and to see if the virus is real and if anyone gets infected. Chief Medical Officer Dr. Jane Appleby heard the heartbreaking story from a member of her staff. Just before the patient died, they looked at their nurse and they said, I think I made a mistake. I thought this was a hoax, but it's not. Appleby says several of their critically ill coronavirus patients are in their 20s and 30s. It's a growing trend seen across San Antonio. The majority of our cases now are people under 40 years old. For most of June, young adults made up about 25% of positive cases. Mayor Ron Nuremberg says we're in a period of very high community transmission. If you're having a party with people who don't aren't part of your social circle in your household, it has the potential to be a COVID party whether you like it or not. This is just one example of a potentially avoidable death in a young member of our community. Appleby says they care deeply for their patients. And while they're ready to help you, they hope you don't need it. Please wear a mask. Stay at home when you can, avoid groups of people, and sanitize your hands. I take 
no joy in this story. I, I don't. I despise anybody who would do a tap dance and say, "I told you so." This is just heartbreaking. This is just really sad. And to some extent, you know, I don't just blame the individuals here because it is true that our government and every sort of official authority source has lied to us so many times that people are now skeptical of absolutely everything that comes from any kind of official outlet. So when you get lied to over and over and over by the people who are supposed to tell you the truth, then when they tell you the truth, it's a boy who cried wolf type situation and um, bad things happen. And so that's what happened in this. Now, I will, I want to, I want to beg people and plead with people for the love of God, take it seriously. You know, there was an interesting story. Somebody was saying on Twitter that like a baseball player and they're from the Northeast. In the Northeast, when they go out, everybody's wearing a mask. The person was in Florida, went to the store, wore a mask. He was getting dirty looks as a result of it. And I'm here to tell you guys, it is not macho. It is not manly. It is not like, you know, you're stronger as a person if you don't wear a mask. The virus, a virus is a little microscopic enemy, and it doesn't matter about your willpower. <laughs> if it gets you, it gets you. So to not wear a mask doesn't send off the vibe you think it does. It actually sends off a sign that, like, hey, perhaps I'm, perhaps I'm not as educated on this as I should be, and I'm putting it kindly only saying that. Perhaps I'm ignorant on this front. That's the message it really sends off. So there should be no stigma associated with wearing a mask at all. In fact, if anything, the stigma should go in the opposite direction, that if you're going to a place where you are inside with a bunch of people, you've got to wear a mask, man. You've got to do it. I've said this a thousand times on the show, but I say it because it's true. You know, look at how Japan handled the COVID-19 pandemic. It wasn't perfect. I'm not saying it's perfect. But... They had less than 1,000 deaths, and they had some minor shutdowns here and there in the economy, but not a full total shutdown like we've done. And um, less than 1,000 people died. Why? Because virtually everybody wears a mask. So, yes, masks are that important. They are that vital. And, you know, to try to tempt fate and get the virus on purpose, oh, my God. My only argument to you, and this is the strongest point I think anybody can make, is this. We have over 130,000 people dead in this country alone. Do you think, what do you think? Do you think that those people aren't actually dead? That it's a total lie? That all of that was made up? Think about how large of a conspiracy that would have to be in order for that to be the case. Every, every segment, every level of society would have to be in on it. They would have had to fake scenes of giant Uh, frozen trucks outside of New York hospitals where they were putting dead bodies because they were overflowing in the morgues, they would have had to fake putting the trucks there and putting the bodies inside. People would have had to fake losing loved ones. This is not fake. This is not a hoax. This is as real as it gets. There are over 130,000 people who died. That's more than two Vietnam wars for U.S. casualties. I believe it was 60,000 Americans who died in the Vietnam War. Um, 
at what number would people say, you know what, clearly this isn't a hoax? How high would it have to go? 250,000? 1 million? Like, at what level would you say, damn, this is actually really serious? At what level? That's, um, that's a genuine question. At what level would everybody say, like, okay, I mean, obviously, at that level, that's way too much. Because, you know, it is kind of wild to me that things have become so political and things have become so detached from reality that you do have a healthy chunk of society, use healthy ironically here, um, just denying that the virus either exists or denying that it's as bad as people say. Well, if it wasn't as bad as people said, then you wouldn't have 130,000 people dead. So it's dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. And take it as seriously as you possibly can. I'm, I'm genuinely saddened by this story. And there was another one, by the way. There's a doctor on Twitter who was kind of like going through a bunch of the people who died as a result of COVID. One of them was a woman in the South who had just a month earlier or so had written this long thing about how this is just a, a trial run for socialism to take over the country and like this is how they control you. Don't listen to them. This isn't what you think it is. And then a month later, she's dead from COVID. She didn't take it seriously. It's really sad stuff, man. It pains me that there are so many things that appear to be unanimous views in the rest of the world that for whatever reason here in the U.S., we got this contrarian streak where there's always going to be some large segment that's just like, no. And it doesn't matter how much evidence you present. They believe it as an article of faith that the contrarian position is correct. Don't be silly. Don't be silly. All right. Time for some Rave Dubin talk. I got me some Rave Dubin talk. Rave Dubin talk. Now, just so everybody knows, the next show is not going to be on Thursday. The next show is going to be a day earlier on Wednesday, okay? So the next show is going to be on Wednesday, and um, we will go on at 2.30. 2.30 on Wednesday is the next show, okay? Just want to let everybody know. So the Thursday show has been moved up to Wednesday in the middle of the day at 2.30, If you're listening live, I wanted to throw that out there for everybody. All right, now, Rave Dubin time. I forgot to mention that show time thing earlier. Anyway, Dave Rubin basically came out of the conservative closet here and kind of let everybody know, like, well, if you define it like this and this, then, okay, I'm a conservative. Thank you, Dave, for saying the thing that most people who were paying attention knew quite a while ago. Um, But he also apparently totally flipped his position on religion. Take a look. Well, now Douglas, in a a British sense, he calls himself a conservative. Yeah. Um, Which, you know, again, without getting lost in that thing, it's basically what an old school liberal is. I have no problem if that's what conservatism is and if acknowledging as Douglas is doing in in that idea, acknowledging that Judeo-Christian values, and as Ben talked about, the the balance between uh, Jerusalem and and Athens, 
um, if, if acknowledging all of that is what makes the world go, yeah, is what gives us the underpinning to free people. Well, then I'm a conservative, and that's attitude. But do you do do you think like is it enough? to acknowledge, as I think, as like every sensible person I know today does, as you do, as Jordan Peterson does, that you need religion, and you need like a good religion. Society cannot organize around anything else. It it needs religion. Simply cannot do it. That doesn't mean that there aren't people, individual people. Yeah. Sam Harris, for example, I believe him to be a deeply moral person. He's a good buddy of mine. Yeah, yeah. Many times, you know, like. I don't know if he would want that. He, we've had yeah. drinks many times. Just drink. I don't know if he's totally a guy. I'll just say yeah. I did. Uh-huh. Um, but, but Michael Shermer, Peter Bergosian, I know plenty of atheists yeah. who are good, moral, decent people. Those ideas cannot organize society. Yeah. They simply cannot. The idea that you can mindfully meditate yeah. the way to a good society yeah. simply does not work. He's become the most standard doctrinaire down the line conservative pundit. Amazing to watch, like, the the transition occur. But, hey, he said it right there. Now, this is a point that you could hear, you know, Pat Robertson make, Rush Limbaugh make. Like, this is something that one of those guys would say, that we need religion as an organizing factor of society. You cannot have a society that functions properly if they're not religious. You need those organizing principles. Well, that's interesting because, Dave, take a look at this. When you look at what countries are the least religious in the world, Sweden, Denmark, and Norway are some of the top ones. And look at that. They're asked, um, is religion important? 82% in Sweden say no, unimportant. In Denmark, 80%. In Norway, 78%. We're talking about societies where only 17%, 19%, and 21% respectively said that religion is important. Now, those countries, mind you, also are kicking our ass and kicking the ass of the rest of the world on so many relevant areas that I would argue define what a healthy society is. So the happiness index, which might be the most important of all of them, these places self-report being significantly happier than other places in the world. There's, they're routinely within the top five or ten of the happiest countries in the world. You know, people there have health care taken care of, education taken care of, a better work-life balance, much more time off. Um, so statistically... They're doing significantly better than we are to the extent you could objectively measure any of this stuff. And they also happen to be deeply non-religious, but also (gasps) pretty leftist. They're pretty leftist. These countries are, of course, um, social democracies, or another term for that is welfare states. It's so funny saying that. Meanwhile, that's a trigger for conservatives where they think that, you know, immediately – has a negative connotation to it. It actually doesn't. When you think of welfare, would you want to look out for the welfare of your parents? How about your kids? And if you're willing to look out for the welfare of your parents and your kids, how about your neighbors and your friends, your best friend? It's good to look out for their welfare, right? 
So why wouldn't it be good to have, look out for the welfare of a society? And that's what social democracy is. That's what welfare statism is. You still have some semblance of capitalism and private ownership and competition, but that is massively ameliorated by a reasonable floor that you set in society where you say, listen, you're not going to have to worry about education. You're not going to have to worry about health care. You're going to have good wages. Some of these countries are like almost totally unionized. So everybody gets massively high wages. They don't even need a minimum wage because everybody's basically in a union. And so the wages are already amazing in some of these countries. So look at what's happened to Dave Rubin. <laughs> I mean, he used to be you know, part of the TYT network and he was somewhat on the left. And then, but the most amazing part is, so he left TYT and his big, his big, you know, change of mind was around Sam Harris. He thought like, oh, TYT was very unfair to Sam Harris. And he agreed more with Sam Harris. And so really his new show was first and foremost birthed in new atheism in a way. And like taking a stand for secularism, secular values, believing that religion has a deleterious effect on society. And like that was really the cornerstone of the identity change. But then after time, or excuse me, over time, after a while, you had like he's gradually moved on from being an atheist. And then he kind of went through a phase where it was like, first he was, he loved Sam Harris. Then it became like, no, 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 I'm actually, actually Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is the guy I really like. And of course, Jordan Peterson is one of the biggest ardent defenders of religion, public voices that's like sort of pro-religion. And, um, but it's sort of amazing how they're, they're keep, there's these constant political transformations that happen. Now, listen, I'm an open-minded guy and I've had my mind changed on a couple things here and there. But this is a point I've made time and time again, which is it's one thing to change your mind on one thing. It's one thing to change your mind on two things. Shoot, you could change your mind on four or five things. That's par for the course. That's part of growing. You're telling me virtually your entire ideology shifted multiple times as a grown adult Where, to, to the extent that it's not even – it's clear it's not – you're not going through something objectively and reasoning. No. What you're doing is you're adopting these personas like you're part of a political religion every time you change your views. It's not just I changed my mind on one, two, three, or five things. No, I changed my entire worldview. And I didn't do it once. I did it multiple times. And that's where we are with Dave Rubin. Now he says you can't have a, you know, a highly functioning society without religion. Meanwhile, the societies that are probably functioning the best in the world are non-religious. So it's just always beware the person who has full political transformations where it's their entire worldview as an adult that shifts. Again, not one thing, two things, five things, whatever. Not like, okay, yes, this is, this is something that I think is reasonable now, the position I didn't think was reasonable previously. That's not that. It is literally every aspect of my worldview has sort of flipped and done it multiple times. doesn't really seem like an organic thing at it, when it happens that way, right? It's like if I came out tomorrow and all of a sudden I had the politics of Glenn Beck, you guys would all be like, what on earth happened? If I changed my mind on one or two issues or three issues or whatever, you'd be like, oh, okay, I get that. 
everything on everything when you're an adult. When you're a kid or you're a teen or whatever, then you get the leeway, of course, as like, sure, you've politically evolved and went from one direction to the other, and it, it takes time and there's a transition, but when you're young enough, sure. When you're a grown man, change your mind on everything multiple times and just totally denying the preponderance of the evidence here as to religion and atheism and how you organize society, it's just, it's oh so very Dave Rubin, and that's about all I'll say about that. Okay, I am going to do one more story for everybody. This story is really, really interesting to me for a variety of reasons, but... The Washington Redskins are changing the name of their team. Um, You know, Redskins is something that is interpreted as a slur by many people. And there's been a movement for a long time to sort of get them to change the name. And now they're actually doing it. So let's take a look here. It says, for immediate release, July 13, 2020, statement from the Washington Redskins football team. On July 3rd, we announced the commencement of a thorough review of the team's name. The review has begun in earnest. As part of this process, we want to keep our sponsors, fans, and community apprised of our thinking as we go forward. Today, we are announcing we will be retiring the Redskins' name and logo upon completion of this review. Dan Snyder and Coach Rivera are working closely to develop a new name, and design approach that will enhance the standing of our proud tradition franchise our proud tradition rich franchise and inspire our sponsors fans and community for the next 100 years. Okay, so now obviously in the wake of the killing of George Floyd there's been a lot of protests around the country and there's been a lot of focus on racial issues, on police brutality, But there has been a noticeable shift um, as the protests went on more towards symbolic stuff. And, you know, when it comes to the Confederate monuments, that's the best example of it. I agree they should be taken down. But I also think there's a broader conversation to be had about statues, the utility of statues, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Because I do recognize it's not going to just stop at, at Confederate statues. And, indeed, we had many other statues pulled down, including General Grant, who defeated, you know, the, the Confederacy. So you're pulling down Confederate statues, but also the guy who defeated the Confederacy. Then there were, like, Frederick Douglass, Douglass statues that were pulled down. Everybody's like, what? And it seemed like a movement towards just anti-statue, almost like an anarchist approach of, like, just rip everything down. And I actually think that's a defensible position to have, but, you know, there need to be coherent arguments and logical discussions over this. And you don't get that. You get a literal mob mentality, which just is easy to caricature and I think is a political gift to the right in some respects. Um, it really is not as important at a time when you have an economic depression and you have um, COVID-19 ripping through the country. But nonetheless, the movement towards 
fundamental change in society was kind of shifted and diverted and became more about just symbolism. And so you had, you know, NASCAR say, no more Confederate flags at our events, and a lot of corporations trying to grapple with race issues, but doing it in the most corporate way possible, which is, you know, hiring Robin D'Angelo to do white fragility seminars and to, you know, make people become hyper race aware. So in other words, it's not really policy focused. It's not focused on mass incarceration or mandatory minimums or the death penalty and how, it, how it's implemented in a racist way or wages or all these other issues. It's really focused narrowly on symbolism. So it was as, as a direct result of that kind of pressure that led to one of the dominoes falling. And then now here's the most important point of this conversation. The next domino that fell, ready for this? The name of their stadium is the FedEx Stadium. FedEx is the sponsor. They hold the naming rights to the team stadium. They said, if you don't change it, we're out. And it was a snowball effect. There were a lot of deals that Washington had with different corporations, and they basically said, like, we're out if you don't change the name. So the thing that really led to this moment of reckoning was not the movement, although you could argue that was the first domino to fall, was not popular opinion, was not democratic will, was not them having a moment, an enlightenment moment where they realized why the team name is an issue. It was just money. It comes down to money. And this is something that, you know, we've seen this trend in modern times quite a bit. And it's a dynamic that's not talked about nearly enough. But the dynamic is that corporations have and will continue to be willing to give away everything on the symbolic front and do whatever they can to appease people symbolically so that there is no addressing of the economic structural problems. Now, perhaps the, the, Washington is not a good example of this, okay? There are better examples, like corporations going all in on virtue signaling while they have sweatshops in Cambodia, Vietnam, so on and so forth, while they're paying horrendous wages. Um, but that is a dynamic that we are seeing kind of across the board, that in order to keep the business model functioning with fewer hiccups, they will give away everything in the realm of social issues and symbolism. Now, that's not to say that the symbolism isn't important. That's not to say that this isn't the right move from Washington. I think it is. Um, but that is to say, I really hope that people understand that that's not the end-all be-all, that you can't just stop at the symbolism, because I do think that that's the new phase that we're in in this country, which is, yes, we're, we've finally gotten past that tipping point of sort of the open symbols of bigotry and a primitive mindset. They're not going to be tolerated anymore. And that's a good thing. But if it just stops there, that is not a win at all. And, and we've only gone 
15 or 20 percent of the way to what really needs to be done, which is real reform. I think that you can't talk about the issue of race in this country without bringing up the fact that the criminal justice system, the mass incarceration that we do, is, I think, the new Jim Crow, which means it's just an extension. First we had slavery, then we had Jim Crow and segregation. Now we have uh, mass incarceration and the drug war, which is just a way to try to effectively lock up the undesirables in society. Don't take my word for it. Take the word of the Nixon administration, who admitted it. They said, yes, politically, it was hippie white people and people of color who were against us. They're never going to be our political allies. They're never going to vote for us. So we wanted to try to criminalize that lifestyle. So what do you do? Wages the drug war. Lock them up as much as possible. And then, by the way, oftentimes they go to prison, and then what happens when they're in prison? They get used as slave labor. We allow slave labor in prisons in this country. So it's an extension of those previous systems of domination, oppression, and control. You can't have a conversation about racial justice without bringing up that. And unfortunately, all the corporations are doing exactly that. Say, what do you want? What do you want? You want us to take down the the Confederate flag? Great. You want us to ban it at our events? Great. You want us to take a knee? Great. You want us to put our fist up and say Black Lives Matter? Great. You want us to change the name of the team? Great. They'll give you a million things. How about this? 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 But it's all symbolism. Imagine if we could actually get, because it's really the people with the power, the people with the money, and when the people with the money said we're pulling out, they were like, okay, imagine that we could actually get these power centers to come out for legalizing marijuana and freeing every nonviolent drug offender. Then we're really having a conversation about racial justice. Then we're really having a conversation about racial justice. But we're not there yet. And I, my fear is that there is no focus on that now. Now everybody's taking the, the symbolic concessions and going, okay, great, it's over, we win. And it's like, that's not, no, that's not, that's not okay. And actually, I'm being a little unfair because in many instances, the protesters do realize they're being diverted a little bit. Like when they pulled down a Golden Girls episode, the response was like, nobody asked for that. We didn't ask for that. What are you doing? So... The end of of a very long era here, I'm sure conservatives are going to lose their minds over this and act like it's totally unreasonable and act like, oh, my God, this is as bad as it gets and this is a tragedy and they're probably going to go buy up all the the Washington Redskins old jerseys and whatnot and make this a bigger issue than it needs to be. Um, But, yeah, then we, we have our – we will keep fighting on the culture war front – as we don't get real systemic change and the symbolism becomes the centerpiece and everybody's focus moving forward. I want to avoid that at all costs. I don't want the symbolism to be the centerpiece. I want people to be better than that and to look beyond that because it's so easy to get sidetracked in the culture war and ultimately not change the system nearly enough. But nonetheless, they are changing the name, which is a good thing, and um, let, let the messiness commence, because I'm sure it's going to get messy with the fallout from this. All right, and on that note, guys, we are done. We are done. I love you. I'll talk to everybody soon. Um, I'm sorry. 
Wednesday at 2.30 is the next show. Capiche? Wednesday at 2.30. All right, guys. I love you, and I'll talk to you later. Everybody stay safe out there. Peace. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.